Would you turn with me, please, in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 63? It's Pentecost Sunday, and if you were expecting an Acts 2 sermon, you're going to be disappointed because you're not getting an Acts 2 sermon today. We're in Isaiah chapter 63 this morning, moving into Isaiah chapter 64. And I'll read from your church Bible since there's one copy here, and that'll make it easier for you to follow. Isaiah chapter 63 and beginning to read at verse 15. And Isaiah is praying here for a plea of mercy for the people of Israel. And God's word reads, Look down from heaven and see, from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains tremble before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent? and punish us beyond measure. Amen. And so reads the word of God. Let's come to God in prayer and ask for his blessing upon our time around his word. Let's all pray. Father, as we come to your word, we would echo the words of the hymn writer when they said, Speak, Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, 
shape and fashion us in your likeness. Oh God, this is our desire that we might each one hear the still small voice of God speaking to us as your word is proclaimed just now. And we pray, O oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses Christ as Lord. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, as I said, I'm not intending this morning to preach to you an Acts 2 sermon. That's not my aim this morning. My aim this morning is to stir your heart. My aim is from Isaiah 64 to take us back into the Old Testament to see a time whenever I think we've got a lot of parallels in 21st century England today. And I want us to see Isaiah's heart's cry for revival. I'm not even going to claim that this is an expository sermon in the true sense of the word. I'm not going to go through this passage verse by verse. But what I want to do this morning is through God's word to stir your heart to see revival in our time. If I was to ask you this morning, what is the great need of our land today? I wonder what answers you might give. Well, you might think that we need a government who would give a bit more help to those who are struggling with the cost of living. You might think that we need to see social change because everything seems to be going wrong. But I think that the big need of our time is for a fresh move of the Spirit of God. First of all, within the church, which will then echo and ripple out outside of the church. And what I'm suggesting this morning is not that we need another Pentecost. There's a song that says those exact words, we need another Pentecost. I don't believe we do because I think that Pentecost was a once-for-all occasion in the church's history when the Church of Christ was born. But oh, we need to see a move of the Holy Spirit like that of Pentecost. We need to see a move of God in such a way where men and women and children are brought to their knees in repentance and turning to Jesus Christ. And I believe that that's what we have before us here in Isaiah 64. First of all, the what is revival? It's one of those words that in Christian circles we talk a lot about. Or perhaps we don't talk as much about it as people used to. But revival is one of those words that I suspect if we were each to go around this room and to give a definition, we'd probably get a different definition from each person here. And that's okay as long as we've got the basics right. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said that revival was a time when those in the inside of the church are raised up to a new level of spiritual experience and understanding, and those in the outside are converted and drawn in. And that's simply what I'm taking as my model of revival this morning. First of all, that those within the church of Jesus Christ are raised up to new spiritual heights, and that then affects the outside. I don't want to preach a sermon this morning that is getting at the world out there. I want to stir our hearts in here this morning to go out into the world and be that city on a hill that we've just been singing about. And so as we come to Isaiah's prophecy this morning, there's one key verse, and you probably have picked it up already. Isaiah 64, verse 1. And if you take nothing else away this morning, take this with you, God's word. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, O God, and come down. This scene in Isaiah 64 is some 40 years after Isaiah's initial vision of the glory of God. You know that famous scene in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah is swept up and he sees the glory of the Lord and his train filling the temple. 
and he sees the cherubim and the seraphim declaring, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah is sent out then to prophesy to the people of Israel and to take God's message to the people. And Isaiah 64, the old prophet, has seen it all. He's seen judgment upon Israel. He's seen the people taken into captivity. He's had that wonderful sight in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant who was to come and be the Messiah for the people of Israel. And as the old prophet comes near the end of his time prophesying to the people of Israel, his heart's desire is for the people to experience a fresh move of God. Why is this? Well, first of all, he sees a time of trouble in the land. If you're taking notes and you like points, first point is it's a time of trouble in Israel. Look with me at verse number five. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. The characterization of Israel here is that sin is accepted. Verse 5 and 6 tell us that the people have continued in sin. They've continued to turn their back on their God. Their God who had led them out of captivity in Egypt. Their God who had been faithful to them over so many years. And yet the people have continued in sin against this God. They've rejected his way. And Isaiah is left with the question, how can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. The sin of God's people has infected them to such an extent that, verse 10, their sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem a desolation. The temple has been burned with fire. It's a time of absolute desolation for Israel because sin has been accepted. Sin has become the norm. And I want to be careful in this first point not to draw a direct comparison between Israel and Isaiah 64 and 21st century England and the Christian church primarily. But if we were being completely honest, wouldn't we say that sin has been accepted? In our land, sin is celebrated. It's not just accepted, it is celebrated. And you can't just accept sin, you have to celebrate sin. But actually in the Christian church, sin has been accepted. I mourn over the fact that some 60 years ago, the church lost the battle on divorce. Because that was the point at which sin was accepted into the Christian church. And everything else that we've seen in the Church of England primarily, but in the Christian church more broadly, has been a sliding slope ever since then. At that point, marriage was undermined completely by the Church of England. And why are we surprised then to see that marriage can almost be whatever you want it to be in the modern day. Sin is accepted in the church. But I suspect that in Stapleford Baptist this morning, I'm not going to get too much pushback on points around marriage. If you've invited me to preach, I'm suspecting we're largely on the same page in those issues. However, are there sins that you're kind of casual about? Are there sins that are very clearly prohibited by Holy Scripture that you think, well, that's not really too bad. Nobody else knows about that. That doesn't hurt anyone else. And so I can just continue on 
in that sin, or I can continue on accepting that sin. Don't make that mistake, because sin will take you farther than you ever want to go. If there's a sin in your life, or a sin in this church, or a sin corporately today that we must confess to God, let us confess it and bring it before God, because we see the consequences here of sin being accepted by the people of God. Israel had accepted sin, and as a consequence, this was a time of trouble. But not only had sin been accepted, apathy was prevalent. Verse number seven, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. Now, as we look around the Christian church today, isn't that just a descriptor? If we look in our prayer meetings, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. I think that this is perhaps what is more relevant to us even perhaps than the fact that sin is accepted by the Israelites. Apathy. Isn't it just so easy to be comfortable in the Christian life, to enjoy our nice Christian surroundings, to enjoy fellowship with the people of God, and not really to be overly concerned with calling on God or striving to lay hold of God for him to move in our lives, in our church's life, in the lives of those out there who need the saving grace of God. Isn't it so easy to become apathetic and to think, well, it doesn't really all matter at the end of the day. I'm okay. Do we really need to strive to lay hold on God? There's sin in the land and there's apathy in the land. And as a consequence, there is trouble in the land. This is a great time of trouble for God's chosen people. And I think as we look around 21st century England, we do have a strong parallel. It's a time of trouble for the Christian church, isn't it? It's a time whenever the church seems weak and irrelevant and it's going out of fashion. And well, you can do that so long as you don't interfere with the rest of us. I was listening to a political debate recently. I'm really into my politics. And there was a Christian MP discussing this issue. I can't remember what the issue was, but they were discussing an issue with a secular MP. And the secular MP said to the Christian MP, well, whenever you come into Parliament, you should just leave your faith at the door. Well, how can you expect anyone to do that? Because the secularist doesn't leave their secularism at the door. And so the Christians shouldn't leave their Christianity at the door, and they shouldn't be apathetic about the Christian gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting that we live in a theocracy, but you can't expect Christians to be apathetic about their faith. And let us not, brothers and sisters, fall into the trap of being those who leave our faith at those doors at the back whenever we walk out of this place this morning. We're to be the light in the darkness. We're to be a city on the hill that cannot be hid. We're not to be apathetic about our faith. Instead, we're to be as Isaiah of old, calling upon God for his land and for his people. Calling upon God to move in such a way that he would rend the heavens and come down. There is a time of trouble in Israel. But this time of trouble doesn't make Isaiah despair. It's so easy as Christians to despair, isn't it? It's so easy to see the world going the way it's going and just to fall into desperation. No, Isaiah comes to God and he brings the people's sin to God as an intercessor for them. And this is a time of Isaiah for repentance. A time for repentance. Repentance. 
Isaiah confesses the people's sin to God in verse 6 again. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. See, Isaiah doesn't just bring the sin to God. He confesses the people's sin to God in repentant prayer. And revival is always preceded by prayer in the hearts of God's people. If you are interested in church history, you might know, but the history of revival is the history of God's people on their knees. If you want to see a move of God in Stapleford today, I can give you a one-step guide to getting there. Get on your knees before Almighty God. And the first thing that must happen is that we must bring our own confession to God. For the Spirit of God will not move where there is unconfessed sin among God's people. This is what we learn here from Isaiah, that we must start off not asking God to do things, but to bring our own repentance to him in prayer. He acknowledges God as their father. I think on three occasions throughout the reading that we took this morning, Isaiah acknowledges God as father. He acknowledges that he is overall, he is their father. He is the one who has brought them into relationship with him. And so Isaiah brings the people's sin to God in repentance. He acknowledges God as father, but then he does a rather strange thing. But throughout the Old Testament, this is quite a common thing. He appeals to God's covenant with his people. Isaiah doesn't really know how to pray on this occasion, I suspect. He sees the trouble in Israel. And then in verse 9, he says this. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. God, you chose us out from among the nations as your people. You brought us into this relationship with you. You made this everlasting covenant with us. Oh God, be faithful to your covenant. We have sinned so much against you. We have turned our back on you. But God, be faithful to your covenant with us, we pray. Wouldn't that be a wonderful prayer for us as a church to pray today? Oh God, you chose us out. Before the foundation of the world you chose us and brought us into loving relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have led us through life so far. And yet, Lord, so often we turn our back on you and we reject your way and go our own way. But, Lord, we are your people. Would you not cast us off forever? Would you not have mercy upon us and rend the heavens and come down? We don't deserve it. It's not because we are doing the right thing or running the right evangelism courses or doing the right initiatives. It's in God's mercy that he would rend the heavens and come down. And Isaiah appeals to God as the father of the people of Israel and he appeals to God's everlasting covenant with his people. I'm a historian by background. I've done my undergraduate degree in history, so I love history. If you want to talk to me about American political history, you'll find a man willing to talk to you for a very long time. But church history, as I said at the beginning of this point, church history is littered with great outpourings of revival. And if I had any criticism to make of the church in Northern Ireland, it would be this, that we live too much in the light of the 1859 
revival. We talk about it as if it was just yesterday, but it was 150 years ago. But how did that little revival start? Well, in 1857, three men got together in a county Antrim village, which no one here will know of, I'm sure, apart from perhaps one lady who have met already, a little village called Kells in County Antrim. And these three men overtook an old schoolroom, and week by week they got together and they prayed to God for a revival to come upon Ulster. And those three men, there was one other man then got saved. They took it upon their hearts to pray for this one man. And this one man got saved and he took the good news of the gospel back out to his village, a hockle, off down the road, also in County Antrim, I think. And he took the news off there and he started a little prayer gathering there. And two years later in 1859, 100,000 souls were swept into the kingdom of God as God poured out his spirit upon Ulster. And it all started with three men who brought their petitions and their prayers to God. That's how that revival was begun. Friends, if we're going to see any move of God today, we must be the church who are on our knees before the living God. We must be on our knees seeking him, seeking his face. And not just individually in the private place, but we must come together corporately and be crying out to God for his mercy upon the church, but his mercy upon our land. This was a time of trouble in Israel. It was a time of repentance. But then most significantly, it was a time of pleading for Isaiah. Isaiah was the one man who took it upon his heart that we have recorded for us to pray for the nation of Israel. He was the only one that we have recorded at this time period who took it upon himself to cry out to Almighty God and say in this key verse that we have this morning, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Can you just imagine the old prophet as he looks around at the trouble in the land, as he sees the temple in desolation, as he sees the people continuing on in sin, you can almost see the tears streaming down his face as he's on his knees before God saying, oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down among us so that we might be brought back to you, oh God. That's literally what verse one means. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens. You have that real verbal image. You have that tearing open of the heavens and God coming down in holy power. I wonder, are you sitting comfortably this morning? Don't answer that, because I might give you the answer back that you don't want to hear. But are you sitting comfortably? I do a lot of travel now with work. I think at the last time I was here was around this time last year, and I'd just been uh, given a new job in the university. And over this last nine months or so, I've clocked up more air miles than I ever thought it would clock up in my whole life. But the question that you're always asked at the beginning of the flight, if you're in business class anyway, is are you sitting comfortably? And then the captain will come on and then the air hostess will come on over the little tannoy and say, sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. Is that your Christian life? Is your Christian life a case of sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight to heaven? It certainly wasn't the case for Isaiah. Isaiah's life was not a sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight experience. Isaiah rather had a holy discomfort about the state of God's people in his time. 
Isaiah had a holy concern for what he saw going on around him. And so Isaiah brings this great plea to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, God, come down among us. Now, there's some debate about how this is actually fulfilled. That's not really my concern this morning. You can debate that afterwards, how this is actually fulfilled. But what I want you to get this morning is the desire of the prophet. This was the prophet's great desire that God would move among Israel in such a way that they would be brought back to him. And again, Isaiah appeals to the historical record of Almighty God. The end of verse 1, that the mountains would tremble before you. That's a reference to the book of Exodus, whenever God came down upon Mount Sinai and the mountains literally trembled at the presence of God. And the people caught something of the glory of God, but they couldn't experience the full glory. Oh, wouldn't you love to experience something of the glory of God here in Stapleford? Wouldn't it be wonderful if this was the prayer of this church? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down so that we might see the glory of God displayed around this town. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that was our heart's desire? But A.W. Tozer, the great preacher and evangelist, wrote much on revival, and he said, to desire revival, to have that inner desire for revival, and at the same time to neglect prayer and devotion is to wish one way and to walk another. To have that inner desire for revival and not to be on your knees in prayer, those two things don't go together. There'll be nothing coming out the other side of that equation. The inner desire must be there in each of our hearts, but we must be like Isaiah of old, on our knees, praying, asking God to come down and to move among us. I said that we don't need a fresh Pentecost. We don't need to have another Pentecost. But I'm glad that we read from Acts 2. In fact, I'd ask to read that second longer Bible reading. Because throughout the Bible and into the New Testament, we see a pattern of whenever great moves of God happen. What is that pattern? Well, Acts gives it to us right throughout the book of Acts. The book of Acts really is the story of God's people coming together, God's people on their knees before God in prayer, and then God moving in mighty ways. If you want to see things happening like what happened in the book of Acts, where many souls are swept into God's kingdom, that's the little formula that you need. And I'm not suggesting then that that formula is going to automatically equal results because subject to the will of Almighty God. But we do have before us in Scripture God's people coming together, God's people praying, and then God moving. We must have that desire for revival, but then we must take action and ask God primarily to take action. Let me speak for a moment to those perhaps who are here this morning and are unsaved, because I'm conscious that on Sunday mornings, I'm not necessarily speaking to a room full of those who are in the kingdom. The little question I want to leave with you this morning is this, from verse 5. The last little sentence in verse 5, how then can we be saved? How then can we be saved? Perhaps you're here this morning and you acknowledge there's something wrong with this world. 
You acknowledge there might even be something wrong with you. And the question for you is, how can all of this be made right? Well, the answer is that in verse 12, where Isaiah gives this question, after all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? The answer was no. Because that great vision that Isaiah had of a suffering servant in Isaiah 53, one who would come and who would bear our iniquities upon him, who would take our sin and take our punishment, that is the answer to the question in verse 5. How then can we be saved? We live in a better time than Isaiah, for we can look back to a historical reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world. God literally did rend open the heavens and come down on that first Christmas morning. He came down in the form of a little baby, and that baby in the manger went on to become a 33-year-old man who hung on a Roman cross, despite having never been one of those who have become unclean despite whose righteousness was true righteousness, it wasn't like filthy rags, whose sin did not sweep him away, rather our sin swept him away. Our sin took the Son of God to the cross. And so if you're here this morning, the question that you need answered is, how then can I be saved? It's through the saving work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. All you have to do is acknowledge your sin and accept his so great salvation. And that would be a personal revival for you this morning. That would be the most wonderful revival that could happen here this morning. If you would come and accept this Jesus as your savior, for God has rent opened the heavens and come down. But believers here this morning, would you take this as your pattern for this week to come? Recognize that this is a time of trouble. In our land, in the church, it is a time of trouble. We can disagree over the extent, but I think we'd all acknowledge there's trouble in the land. But then make it a time of repentance. Make it a time where we confess our sin to Almighty God. And then make it a time of great pleading. I think you've just had a week or two of prayer here. That's wonderful for me to hear as I come into a church this morning, that you've had a week or two of prayer, because so many places are neglecting the place of prayer in the life of the church. Keep on praying because prayer makes things happen. Prayer is how we see these great acts in the Bible happening. And if we're going to see a revival in our time, then there must be prayer among the people of God. I'm not a big one for these kind of three-step guides to this. Not a big one for these books that give you five steps to self-help or five steps to a better life or all the rest of it. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I started with, did have three steps to revival. And I'm going to give you a warning. This isn't a guarantee, but three steps to revival. One, recognizing sin. Recognize that there is sin in the camp. Two, mourning over sin. That's the repentance. Mourning over our sin. And three, urgent intercession. God's people are the only ones who will get on their knees for this land. We will never see a move of God in the UK today unless God's people, the church, are on their knees before God, pleading for our land. And may I say that where revival is going to happen corporately in the church, revival must begin individually. Because what is the church if not a group of individuals 
The church isn't some abstract concept that you can say, oh, well, that church is experiencing revival. It's the people in the church who are experiencing revival. And so individually this morning, would we take it upon ourselves, if you're a child of God, to recognize sin, to mourn over sin, and then to urgently intercede on behalf of those that you know and you love and on behalf of our land so that we might see God rend open the heavens and come down, so that we might experience something of the glory of God in, this, in our lives individually, in this church, and then experience the glory of God as many are brought into his kingdom in his will as the radiance of God shines out from this place. Would this be your prayer this morning with the hymn writer? There shall be showers of blessing. Send them upon us, O Lord. Grant to us now a refreshing. Come and now honor thy word. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling. But for the showers we plead. Would you plead for those showers of blessing? Will you make that your mission in the week to come? If there's unconfessed sin in your life, root it out and confess it to God. Oh, but then get on your knees and intercede for the people of this land.